Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Walter F. Adonai, M.A. The Second Exodus. Ezra 2. 1-67. The journey of the returning exiles from Babylon has some points of resemblance to the exodus of their fathers from Egypt. On both occasions, the Israelites had been suffering oppression in a foreign land. Deliverance had come to the ancient Hebrews in so wonderful a way that it could only be described as a miracle of God, no material miracle was recorded of the later movement, and yet it was so marvelously providential that the Jews were constrained to acknowledge that the hand of God was not less concerned in it. But there were great differences between the two events. In the original Hegira of the Hebrews a horde of slaves was fleeing from the land of their brutal masters, in the solemn pilgrimage of the second exodus the Jews were able to set out with every encouragement from the conqueror of their national enemy. On the other hand, while the flight from Egypt led to liberty, the expedition from Babylon did not include an escape from the foreign yoke. The returning exiles were described as children of the province 13i.e, of the Persian province of Judea and their leader, or the title of a Persian governor. 14 Zerubbabel was no new Moses. The first exodus witnessed the birth of a nation, the second saw only a migration within the boundaries of an empire, sanctioned by the ruler because it did not include the deliverance of the subject people from servitude. In other respects the condition of the Israelites who took part in the later expedition contrasts favorably with that of their ancestors under Moses. In the arts of civilization, of course, they were far superior to the crushed Egyptian bondmen. But the chief distinction lay in the matter of religion. At length, in these days of Cyrus, the people were ripe to accept the faith of the great teachers who hitherto had been his voices crying in the wilderness. This fact signalizes the immense difference between the Jews in every age previous to the exile and the Jews of the return. In earlier periods they appear as a kingdom, but not as a church, in the later age they are no longer a kingdom, but they have become a church. The kingdom had been mainly heathenish and idolatrous in its religion, and most abominably corrupt in its morals, with only a thin streak of purer faith and conduct running through the course of its history. But the new church, formed out of captives purified in the fires of persecution, consisted of a body of men and women who heartily embraced the religion to which but few of their forefathers had attained, and who were even ready to welcome a more rigorous development of its cult. Thus they became a highly developed church. They were consolidated into a Puritan church in discipline, and a high church in ritual. It must be borne in mind that only a fraction of the Jews in the East went back to Palestine. Nor were they who tarried, in all cases, the more worldly, enamored of the fleshpots. In the Talmud it is said that only the chaff returned, while the wheat remained behind. Both Ezra and Nehemiah sprang from families still residing in the East long after the return under Zerubbabel. It is in accordance with these conditions that we come across one of the most curious characteristics of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah a characteristic which they share with Chronicles, viz, the frequent insertion of long lists of names. Thus the second chapter of Ezra contains a list of the families who went up to Jerusalem in response to the Edict of Cyrus. One or two general considerations arise here. Since it was not a whole nation that migrated from the plains of Babylon across the great Syrian desert, but only some fragments of a nation, we shall not have to consider the fortunes and destinies of a composite unity, such as is represented by a kingdom. The people of God must now be regarded disjunctively. It is not the blessing of Israel or the blessing of Judah that faith now anticipates, 
but the blessing of those men, women, and children who fear God and walk in his ways, though, of course, for the present they are all confined to the limits of the Jewish race. On the other hand, it is to be observed that this individualism was not absolute. The people were arranged according to their families, and the names that distinguished the families were not those of the present heads of houses, but the names of ancestors, possibly of captives taken down to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. As some of these names occur in later expeditions, it is plain that the whole of the families they represented were not found in the first body of pilgrims. Still the people were grouped in family order. The Jews anticipated the modern verdict of sociology, that the social unit is the family, not the individual. Judaism was, through and through, a domestic religion. Further, it is to be noted that a sort of caste feeling was engendered in the midst of the domestic arrangement of the people. It emerges already in the second chapter of Ezra in the cases of families that could not trace their genealogy, and it bears bitter fruit in some pitiable scenes in the later history of the returned people. Not only national rights, but also religious privileges, come more and more to depend on purity of birth and descent. Religion is viewed as a question of blood relationship. Thus even with the very appearance of that newborn individualism which might be expected to counteract it, even when the recovered people is composed entirely of volunteers, a strong racial current sets in, which grows in volume until in the days of our Lord the fact of a man's being a Jew is thought a sufficient guarantee of his enjoying the favor of heaven, until in our own day such a book as Daniel Deronda portrays the race enthusiasm of the Israelite as the very heart and essence of his religion. We have three copies of the list of the returning exiles one in Ezra 2, the second in Nehemiah 7, and the third in 1 Esdras v. They are evidently all of them transcripts of the same original register, but though they agree in the main, they differ in details, giving some variation in the names and considerable diversity in the numbers Esdras coming nearer to Ezra than to Nehemiah, as we might expect. The total, however, is the same in every case, viz. of 42,360, besides 7,337 servants, a large number, which shows how important the expedition was considered to be. The name of Zerubbabel appears first. He was the lineal descendant of the royal house, the heir to the throne of David. This is a most significant fact. It shows that the exiles had retained some latent national organization, and it gives a faint political character to the return, although, as we have already observed, the main object of it was religious. To fervent readers of old prophecies strange hopes would dawn, hopes of the Messiah whose advent Isaiah, in particular, had predicted. Was this new shoot from the stock of David indeed the Lord's anointed? Those who secretly answered the question to themselves in the affirmative were doomed to much perplexity and not a little disappointment. Nevertheless Zerubbabel was a lower, a provisional, a temporary messiah. God was educating his people through their illusions. As one by one the national heroes failed to satisfy the large hopes of the prophets, they were left behind, but the hopes still maintained their unearthly vitality. Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel, the Maccabees all passed, and in passing they all helped to prepare for one who alone could realize the dreams of seers and singers in all the best ages of Hebrew thought and life. Still the bulk of the people do not seem to have been dominated by the messianic conception. It is one characteristic of the return that the idea of the personal, God-sent, but human messiah recedes, and another, older, and more persistent Jewish hope comes to the front viz, the hope in God himself as the savior of his people and their vindicator. 
Cyrus could not have suspected any political designs, or he would not have made Zerubbabel the head of the expedition. Evidently Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah, to whom Cyrus handed over the sacred vessels of the temple, is the same man as Zerubbabel, because in Via 16 we read that Sheshbazzar laid the foundation of the temple, while in 3. 8 this work is ascribed to Zerubbabel, with whom the origin of the work is again connected in V. 2. The second name is Jeshua. 15 The man who bears it was afterwards the high priest at Jerusalem. It is impossible to say whether he had exercised any sacerdotal functions during the exile, but his prominent place shows that honor was now offered to his priesthood. Still he comes after the royal prince. Then follow nine names without any description. 16 Nehemiah's list includes another name, which seems to have dropped out of the list in Ezra. These, together with the two already mentioned, make an exact dozen. It cannot be an accident that twelve names stand at the head of the list, they must be meant to represent the twelve tribes like the twelve apostles in the Gospels and the twelve gates of the New Jerusalem in the Apocalypse. Thus it is indicated that the return is for all Israel, not exclusively for the Judean Hebrews. Undoubtedly the bulk of the pilgrims were descendants of captives from the southern kingdom. 17. The dispersion of the northern kingdom had begun two centuries earlier than Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Judea, it had been carried on by successive removals of the people in successive wars. Probably most of these early exiles had been driven farther north than those districts which were assigned to the Judean captives, probably, too, they had been scattered far and wide, lastly, we know that they had been sunken in an idolatrous imitation of the manners and customs of their heathen neighbors, so that there was little to differentiate them from the people among whom they were domiciled. Under all these circumstances, is it remarkable that the ten tribes have disappeared from the observation of the world? They have vanished, but only as the Goths have vanished in Italy, as the Huguenot refugees have vanished in England by mingling with the resident population. We have not to search for them in Tartary, or South America, or any other remote region of the four continents, because we have no reason to believe that they are now a separate people. Still a very small remnant was faithful. This remnant was welcome to find its way back to Palestine with the returning Judeans. As the immediate object of the expedition was to rebuild the temple at the rival capital of Jerusalem, it was not to be expected that patriots of the northern kingdom would be very eager to join it. Yet some descendants of the ten tribes made their way back. Even in New Testament times the genealogy of the prophetess Anna was reckoned from the tribe of Asher. 18 It is most improbable that the twelve leaders were actually descendants of the twelve tribes. But just as in the case of the apostles, whom we cannot regard as thus descended, they represented all Israel. Their position at the head of the expedition proclaimed that the middle wall of partition was broken down. Thus we see that redemption tends to liberalize the redeemed, that those who are restored to God are also brought back to the love of their brethren. The list that follows the twelve is divisible into two sections. First, we have a number of families, then there is a change in the tabulation, and the rest of the people are arranged according to their cities. The most simple explanation of this double method is that the families constitute the Jerusalem citizens. The towns named in the second division are all situated in the neighborhood of Jerusalem. The only part of Palestine as yet restored to the Jews was Jerusalem, with the towns in its vicinity. The southern half of Judea remained in the hands of the Edomites, who begrudged to the Jews even the resumption of the northern portion and very naturally, 
seeing that the Edomites had held it for half a century, a time which gives some assurance of permanent possession. This must be borne in mind when we come across the troubles between the returned exiles and their neighbors in Palestine. We can never understand a quarrel until we have heard both sides. There is no Edomite history of the wars of Israel. No doubt such a history would put another face on the events just as a Chinese history of the English wars in the East would do, to the shame of the Christian nation. After the leaders and the people generally come the successive orders of the temple ministry. We begin with the priests, and among these a front rank is given to the house of Jeshua. The high priest himself had been named earlier, next to Zerubbabel, among the leaders of the nation, so distinct was his position from that of the ordinary priesthood. Next to the priests we have the Levites, who are now sharply separated from the first order of the ministry. The very small number of Levites in comparison with the large number of priests is startling over 4,000 priests and only 74 Levites. The explanation of this anomaly may be found in what had been occurring in Chaldea. Ezekiel declared that the Levites were to be degraded because of their sinful conduct. 19. We see from the arrangement in Ezra that the prophet's message was obeyed. The Levites were now separated from the priests and set down to a lower function. This could not have been acceptable to them. Therefore, it is not at all surprising that the majority of them held aloof from the expedition for rebuilding the temple in sullen resentment, or at best in cool indifference, refusing to take part in a work the issue of which would exhibit their humiliation to menial service. But the seventy-four had grace to accept their lowly lot. The Levites are not set in the lowest place. They are distinguished from several succeeding orders. The singers, the children of Azaph, were really Levites, but they form a separate and important class, for the temple service was to be choral-rich and gladsome. The doorkeepers are a distinct order, lowly but honorable, for they are devoted to the service of God, for whom all work is glorious. They also serve who only stand and wait. Next come the Nethanims, or temple helots. These seem to have been aborigines of Canaan who had been pressed into the service of the old Jerusalem temple, like the Gibeonites, the hewers of wood and drawers of water. After the Nethanims come the children of Solomon's servants, another order of slaves, apparently the descendants of the war captives whom Solomon had assigned to the work of building the temple. It shows what thorough organization was preserved among the captives that these bondsmen were retained in their original position and brought back to Jerusalem. To us this is not altogether admirable. We may be grieved to see slavery thus enlisted in the worship of God. But we must recollect that even with the Christian gospel in her hand, for centuries, the church had her slaves, the monasteries their serfs. No idea is of slower growth than the idea of the brotherhood of man. So far all was in order, but there were exceptional cases. Some of the people could not prove their Israelite descent, and accordingly they were set aside from their brethren. Some of the priests even could not trace their genealogy. Their condition was regarded as more serious, for the right of office was purely hereditary. The dilemma brought to light a sad sense of loss. If only there were a priest with the Urim and Thummim, this antique augury of flashing gems might settle the difficulty. But such a man was not to be found. The Urim and Thummim, together with the Ark and the Shekinah, are named by the rabbis among the precious things that were never recovered. The Jews looked back with regret to the wonderful time when the privilege of consulting an oracle had been within the reach of their ancestors. 
Thus they shared the universal instinct of mankind that turns fondly to the past for memories of a golden age, the glories of which have faded and left us only the dingy scenes of everyday life. In this instinct we may detect a transference to the race of the vaguely perceived personal loss of each man as he reflects on those far-off, dreamlike child days, when even he was a mighty prophet, a seer blessed, one who had come into the world trailing clouds of glory. Alas! He perceives that the mystic splendors have faded into the light of common day, if they have not even given place to the gloom of doubt, or the black night of sin. Then, taking himself as a microcosm, he ascribes a similar fate to the race. Nothing is more inspiriting in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ than its complete reversal of this dismal process of reflection, and its promise of the golden age in the future. The most exalted Hebrew prophecy anticipated something of the kind, here and there it lit up its somber pages with the hope of a brilliant future. The attitude of the Jews in the present instance, when they simply set a question on one side, waiting till a priest with Urim and Thummim should appear, suggests too faint a belief in the future to be prophetic. But like Socrates' hint at the possibility of one arising who should solve the problems which were inscrutable to the Athenians of his day, it points to a sense of need. When at length Christ came as the light of the world, it was to supply a widely felt want. It is true he brought no Urim and Thummim. The supreme motive for thankfulness in this connection is that his revelation is so much more ample than the wizard guidance man had formerly clung to, as to be like the broad sunshine in comparison with the shifting lights of magic gems. Though he gave no formal answers to petty questions such as those for which the Jews would resort to a priest, as their heathen neighbors resorted to a soothsayer, he shed a wholesome radiance on the path of life, so that his followers have come to regard the providing of a priest with Urim and Thummim as at best an expedient adapted to the requirements of an age of superstition. If the caravan lacked the privilege of an oracle, care was taken to equip it as well as the available means would allow. These were not abundant. There were servants, it is true. There were beasts of burden two camels, horses, asses, but these were few in comparison to the numbers of the host only at the rate of one animal to a family of four persons. Yet the expedition set out in a semi-royal character, for it was protected by a guard of a thousand horsemen sent by Cyrus. Better than this, it possessed a spirit of enthusiasm which triumphed over poverty and hardship, and spread a great gladness through the people. Now at length it was possible to take down the harps from the willows. Besides the temple choristers, two hundred singing men and women accompanied the pilgrims to help to give expression to the exuberant joyousness of the host. The spirit of the whole company was expressed in a noble lyric that has become familiar to U.S. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. We were like unto them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter. And our tongue with singing. Then said they among the nations. The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we are glad. 20. Show less.